All right, guys, so I want to welcome everybody out to another Laid Loss Harley-Davidson podcast. So today we have an awesome guest on the show. I want to thank Jace from Fast Life Garage for making it out here to California. Welcome, yeah. my friend. Thank you, man. It's uh, it's not as sunshiny as I'd hoped it'd be, so <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, well, we've had one of the wettest winters we've had in like 40 years, I think since like 1983. So I, I will say this, like driving around, especially through like the 405 from Venice up to into the valley it's like i'm scared you know like i'm like these hills could slide in on me at any moment you know what i mean and then you just see all the all the housing and everything that's just like built on the side of hills and you're like surely all this rain has got to be doing something to the foundations of some of this stuff so i get a little you know thinking about it, I'm like one good earthquake and this shit's sliding down into the ocean you know what i mean you're exactly right and it happens in fact it's funny right before this podcast my dad sent me some pictures of houses down in san clemente where i live mm-hmm. and they're like literally like hanging off the cliff like ready to like fall down like in this like landslide so yeah we're, we're not used to that around here like in, up here in the san Bernardino mountains they've had more snow than they've ever had in like like i said the last 40 50 years and people mm-hmm. literally can't get out of their house you know hey. so I heard somewhere recently they said that the the water is now pretty much built up for they're almost like good for ten years or something now with all the lakes being filled up in NorCal and everything here. I mean, it's I left Washington and I've literally only seen the sun for like two hours in the last five days because I ro- I rode down or I drove down the coast of uh, Oregon all the way into California and it's like yeah. rain everywhere and then you had the traffic of L.A. and I guess I wouldn't say that the lack of knowing how to ride in the rain drive in the rain sorry. We're driving right now. I'm not yeah. riding. Um, it's been definitely a uh, a patience thing, right? You know, just and of course I'm not. I'm from Dallas. It's flat as hell, so you can ride fat, drive fast in the rain because there's you know there's no nasty curves or elevation right. changes. You can just rip and run. Out here, you're like, okay, well, I should probably slow down down this mountain right now while <laughs> yeah. it's pouring rain. And so, <laughs> well, you're right. You know, us in California, we're not used to, r- to driving in the rain, and so. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that just don't know what they're doing out there. So they're doing like 40 miles an hour on the freeway. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's kind of funny. But, yeah, this is it's not good for motorcycle business, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> you know, things have definitely slowed down around here. When it's raining, people yeah. don't buy. And, you know, a lot of people say, like, oh, well, in California, you guys don't have seasons. You know, you're always selling year-round, you know. And that's not the case this year. You know, it's cold yeah. and rainy, and people aren't buying bikes right now. I mean, we're, we're selling some bikes, but not like we usually do in March. It seems like every other – so it's kind of – I'm on a schedule like every other year – during the Daytona time, I'll either ride out here and do podcasts or like right now I'm driving out here. So, and when I rode out here, uh, in 2021, I had the same thing. I got caught in rain all the way from San Diego, LA. Um, I was ripping around on the bike, trying to go do podcasts and I was just getting wet everywhere. Rode up to, uh, you know, San Francisco, got rained out of there, couldn't ride anywhere. And, uh, it was pretty gnarly. So yeah, I caught that this is the rain season in, in California right now. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so it sounds like you've had some bad luck because usually, you know, we're in droughts and we have no rain. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how, how things happen. The last two big rides we've been on, we got caught in the rain. So that's how it goes sometimes. But uh, just a quick intro. So, you know, I started following you, I think, on social media, like Instagram. I, I came across your photography, which is absolutely beautiful, Thank by you. the way. Like Thank some you. of the stuff, like the shots you do of bikes, like with you know the golden gate bridge in the background or whatever you know mm-hmm. landscape in the background is just like i would say top tier on on instagram on the platform as far as like cruiser motorcycles harley davidson's mostly right yeah only harley's uh, 
Yeah, I like it. You know, that's that's one thing we see very eye to eye is, uh, you know, we're both Harley lovers. But um, obviously, you're a huge photographer. You have one of the biggest, probably if not the biggest moto podcast on the platform in terms of cruiser motorcycles and just people in the industry. Mm-hmm. You're at what, like 300 some odd episodes now? Yeah, I think after this trip, this run, I'll probably be tapping into 330-ish. It's insane. I, so, I mean, it's it's been a labor of love, to be honest with you. But it's tough to say, man. There's a lot of great content creators out there. And I think that a lot of people... A lot of people on YouTube, a little bit of their YouTube has a little bit of what a podcast is and a little bit of what photography is. It's it's like an all-encompassing thing. And uh, I'm easily inspired by other people, yourself being, you know, you being one of those people. And, um, you know, podcasts, I never thought that the podcast would actually be something. It was kind of like uh, being in the motorcycle industry since 2004, you know, so I'm coming up on 20 years in January um, Congrats! That's awesome. You start to meet a lot of people. You 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 find yourself in circles over the years, and it's even been even more wild now that I'm kind of uh, you know rubbing elbows with people that at that time you know I'm standing in the back just like a fly on the wall because I'm literally the sweeper of the shop or something, and now sitting here 20 years later, me and these people are talking business and and whatnot. You know what I'm saying? So it's a very surreal thing, and it's a very great perspective to have. Uh, you know, for anybody out there listening that wants to be in the industry to kind of play it cool and don't burn bridges because mm-hmm. you never know where you're going to be standing in 20 years and who you're going to have to, you know, you know, you're always networking is always going to be a very important thing. So the, the better your reputation is over life, the more opportunities you'll have later in life. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, photography, funny one, man. Like Photography came to me because my son's mother uh, in the mid 2000s, was going to college and she took a photography class and it was all did it was all film and so she would do these things and i've always been into art she would do these photos and we go i'd go with her she'd be taking pictures of doors for a project for her college and then she'd go get them printed and i was just like man that's rad like that's really cool to i mean i don't know why i wouldn't necessarily probably go take pictures of doors but in seeing the image and all that stuff it just kind of i just liked it and then when I started having a success with like motorcycle magazines, like some of the bikes I had customized and painted, um, they would start to get picked up in magazines. And so I'd always become friends with the photographers and we'd always hit it off because I'd understand a little bit. So I spoke a little bit of their language. And then over the years, um, around 2014, um, one of the guys that was shooting my bikes quite a bit in Sturgis, he's like, man, you know, you should really invest in an actual camera because when you go on your trips, you have you take good shots of your bikes with your iPhone. It's like you have like this idea of composition, like you know the angles, but you need to step up and get real high quality stuff so that you can actually have an image. You know, most people, you know, look at photography through their iPhone, so it's all kind of the same flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all the same thing. It's the same size. It's the same backlit uh, image. But real photography, man, is something that's consumed like, you know, these these paintings that are in your room here or you know to a gallery like there's something magical about it when you hold a picture in your hands you know that's one of the things i've liked doing over the years is giving people you know a metal print or a, a nice print of something that i've shot of them uh, to to you know to hold something it's starting to become vintage totally. <laughs> you know what i mean and um so i picked up a camera in 2016 or 2015 and uh you know i, I wasn't trying to be a photographer i was just trying to kind of capture things a little bit better and I kind of lost interest. I'd still use it every once in a while, but I just never never nailed it down as good. I still use it in my jobs all the time. I'd shoot pictures, but 
Um, it wasn't until 2019, 2020 when I really did a deep dive and started like learning and teaching myself how to edit a little bit more professionally, um, investing in more camera equipment, getting a full frame camera because the one prior to that was just a Nikon crop sensor. <laughs> and so, you know, I just, you know, I took it a lot more seriously and made it a goal of mine to, um, especially through the pandemic, try to um, walk out of this or come out of the other end with another skill that's like something that maybe, maybe it could be a career. I don't, I, I don't even, even to this day, I don't think it'll ever be a career, but I think it's a creative outlet that I've enjoyed um, giving others and giving myself. And I take pictures of my wife a lot, you know, clothed and unclothed for myself, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's been a great time for me. So yeah, definitely. Well, and I feel like it, the photography side probably helps advertise and promote yeah. your, your painting work, which, you know, we covered your creative side here at first, but really the, the crux of how you got in the industry is, paint, is your yeah. paint work, right? So um, you do, you do helmets and bikes. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The helmets is a very recent thing. It's something, you know, that I've kind of adopted as a recently while using social media to capture or, or, or you know, like a, a motorcycle, a road glide, for instance, like that's not something that most people are going to throw in the mail and send it to you and say, Hey man, just do your thing on it. Right. So a helmet became this way that I can connect with a lot of the people that I started to kind of gain, um, um, their attention from on social media. So you'd have this guy in New York that, you know, yeah, he wrote a road glide, but he see these helmets that I would do. And he's like, man, I want something like that. And it really opened up the door for me to meet a lot of uh, people that could afford them, but also they could appreciate the art side of it and not the materialism side of it. Right. Um, most people think of paint jobs or a lot of the parts that they put on their bike as, you know, it's nothing, it's the same as an exhaust system. You know, it's on the shelf. I want it, how long, how much, and put it on your bike and then down the road, right? And a paint is literally, if you're not having a custom one-off bike built, one-off meaning every part is handmade, the paint is the only thing handmade on that bike other than the people that made it at the factory. Interesting. And so with paint being that only thing handmade, when people come to you, especially when you become an artist that has a lot of respect for yourself, and they start treating you like your shit's something on a shelf, you know, how much I'm going to go ask the guy down the street. It's like, you, you're not, you're buying a material thing now. You're not buying art, yeah. you know, and I would always get mad. It's like, you're like, oh, you're such an artist. I'm like, then why are you treating me like a goddamn, uh, you know, a, a number one on the, on the menu? You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. So you're, what you're, I think what you're saying is you're not just buying uh, a custom paint set. You're specifically, you're paying for that specific artist to make something unique yeah. for you. You know, it's, it's like, no, no two artists are the same. And exactly. so if you like Jace's work, then how can you really ever shop him against a different painter? Because you only get Jace's work from Jace. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's all with, that's a, all with a grain of salt. That's all a generalization. I mean, I, yeah. I think that, you know, I think that we all come from a, a phase of looking at things in a certain way until we get educated on what it really is. Mm-hmm. And when you find a great painter and you work with them, then you're going to feel like you're actually buying art, you know? And, you're not going to want to repaint it over the next year. You're, if you want to do something different, you're going to want to take it off and maybe sell it or trade it for someone with stock 10 so that that thing still lives on. Totally. And, um, you know, there's a lot to it, man. And I think that over the years, by curating the people that I work with, I found myself to enjoy it more. Um, but at the same time, paint is a very labor-intensive job. You know, an average paint job can have 40 to 200 hours in it. Insane. And you know, helmets, 
my helmets that I do usually have between about 25 to 40 hours, maybe sometimes 50 hours in it. Wow. And when you have that much time in a helmet, it's hard to do these other creative endeavors that you're, you really want to do. Like, oh, I want to go make this video or hell, I want to make a video of me doing this helmet, but it's already 40 hours. Then you had the video and how long that takes to set up cameras and do this. And it's like, Oh, I'm just going to get this paint job done. You, you know, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because I went through your YouTube channel and obviously you, in your podcast, you have a ton of content there, but it was hard for me to find you actually like painting. Yeah. And so it's like, OK, can I find one of his projects where it was kind of like this time lapse or this like step by step of him painting bikes? And I, I, I admit I didn't. OK, I didn't dig super far, but I in the you know 20 minutes I took, yeah. I couldn't find anything. So, yeah, there's one. The very first video I ever posted on there was like a GoPro of me painting my gold FXR frame back in 17. And I put copyrighted music on there just yeah. like everybody else. I didn't try to monetize it or anything like that. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, I have a I have a struggling place of, like, duality with all the things that I do. You know, like, when I was a kid growing up, all I wanted to do was be the baddest custom painter that I could ever be. Not the baddest custom painter in the world, just the best that I could ever be at it, right? Mm-hmm. And then as, as I got closer and closer to where I felt like I didn't see anything else down the road of paint, like I don't know how to, you know, I know that I could be better, but I don't know if if it's if the juice is worth the squeeze, if that makes sense, you know. Yeah. So I, I've I've kind of gone to this point where I got, you know, I've, I dreamed of being here and now I'm here and now I don't want it anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now I want that other thing. Yeah. And, you know, I try not to, you know, maybe – look at it as like okay the grass is greener over there no the the challenge is better or yeah. i want to go there you know i mean i think that's a positive mental state you know always looking to uh, increase your talents mm-hmm. and and progress yourself you know your skill wise and just uh, you know challenge yourself and yeah. so um i mean the fact that you're you are kind of at the top of your game and to now be seeking other challenges in life i think that's a healthy thing i think people that get stagnant in one job or yeah or talent, like they just, it just becomes a job where it puts food on the table and they're not really passionate about it anymore. And I know you're still very passionate about, about painting, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see that as a negative really. And so, you know, I, I say more power to you, but, um, there's a lot of questions I want to ask about painters actually. Um, and I don't know if we're gonna have time for all of them, but someone that comes into like a dealership, like, like this, that, um, looks at all the factory paint options, but, they don't really see one that really speaks to them, or maybe they're building this really cool, badass custom bike that they want everything to be unique about it, mm-hmm. and they want to do a custom paint job. Um, what, what, what's your advice to that person? Yeah, uh, for sure. I think that you know, here's the deal. Um, there are lots of levels of paint, right? There's there's painters that I think that are so far above me in skill and creativity that they're there, and they're you know that's like going to be you know top boss right but there's lots of other painters in this world that are coming up that have good quality and they have an eye for design and they need those opportunities right and i think that when the first thing's always going to happen is for these people to figure out what their budget is on paint and sometimes that could be a, a eye shocking or a, just a shocking number of what maybe the starting price is especially different it's going to vary regionally you know but one of the best things to do is like if you if you as a dealership have relationships with maybe one or more painters that you can like you know have a way to give that customer a 
a visualization of maybe the work they've done in the past or where things could go. Um, it's kind of a tough one, man, because, you know, when you're, you're looking at like paint prices and one of the other things that maybe for context of people out here, my, my whole industry in paint is regulated through the insurance and collision industry, which mm-hmm. is a big industry. Yeah. And paint materials continue to rise every year, five to 10%. So when maybe five years ago, I would paint a road glide for five grand. I wouldn't even paint it black for five grand. You know what I mean? Wow, and it's not yeah. because I'm trying to be pretentious or I'm too good for that. It's just to use quality materials now, like you'll have three or four grand in it, you know? Yeah. And if you're, you know, I'm a one man shop, so I usually do everything myself. I do have friends that come and help me out with certain parts that they're uh, proficient at. Um, but if I'm going to paint a bike and I have three grand, four grand, five grand in materials, depending on what kind of colors they want. I, I mean, I can't run a business off $6,000 in 120 hours, you yeah. know? Yeah. It just, it doesn't make sense. So with all the prices of things going up in the uh, paint world, you know, it's getting to a point where sometimes you like, you know, a new roguelite is 30 grand special. And then you turn around and you're going to put 15 grand in paint on it. Like that's half the price. So I am a little worrisome that the paint industry could um, have a really hard time in the future uh, for painters to really make the money that they're worth. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of one of the th- reasons why I've always like maybe I said the juice isn't worth the squeeze because I could get better. But where else could I take this price? Totally. To get totally. better is also to, you know, want more money for your time. And if I don't s- see there being much more money that can be made through doing this. You know, yeah, I could take this into another genre. I could go paint speedboats, but I'm a motorcyclist. Totally. That's my canvas of choice, and that's where my passion is. You know, I'm not saying that if, I think that because I paint so many motorcycles and have over the years that I have an eye for a good palette, a good design on it. When if I painted a mailbox one day and a bumper the next day and a speedboat next week and then this, you know, your 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 canvas is changing so much that you might not – have as many ideas of how to kind of lay this out and make something unique. So there's, and, and, and of course this is just my opinion. This is the way I've seen things over the years. So it's kind of a, it's just a, it's just my opinion. I, I could be full of shit to be honest with you, but no, I've I, seen it this way. I think you've done it enough and you've dealt with customers. You've, I, I think you're, you're probably pretty accurate in, in, yeah. in terms of what you're saying here. And it's interesting too. Like I've seen a, a big shift over the years. I think in the early two thousands, Harley Davidson, they did a bunch of these, uh, custom painted paint sets that we just put on the shelf mm-hmm. at the dealership and hey here's a custom paint set this it's called um whatever you want to call it the the velocity paint set or whatever it may be and you can buy it and we'll put it on your bike but it seems like since about you know maybe 2009 or 10 or 11 yeah. a lot of people they don't want to buy the cookie cutter paint set anymore in yeah. fact harley davidson has actually changed their model now where they don't sell these P&A, parts, yeah. parts and accessory paint sets anymore. Now what they do is they put these custom paint sets right on the bike and they ship it out with a yeah. new bike. Uh, for example, the Arctic paint set we saw, we saw, um, I don't know if you remember like those, the billiard and the red road glides yeah, that yeah. had the one on the, the side. One, yeah. yeah, and so uh, it Harley-Davidson has changed their business model because what I have found is that people, if they're, if they're going to pay extra money for paint, they want to do it their way and have a unique paint um, their in, in their vision and and have what you just said a unique piece of art on their bike as opposed to buying one of 1500 although yeah, that's still yeah. a small number relatively speaking yeah um 
people, if they're going to spend the extra money, they want to have something that's unique. That's like their vision, you know, or maybe yeah, like some yeah. graphics that, you know, speak to, speak them. to them, color yeah. schemes that might speak to them more. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot to it, man. It's, it's such a tricky thing. And you could actually attest that a lot of like the reason why maybe the paint sets didn't have, hold as much value is because of the exposure of all the biker build off. And you know, that whole craze of people having things done by hand, it just, it meant something more to have a, a one-off bike built by so-and-so and painted by so-and-so and over the years. But, and I'm, to be honest with you, that's when I fell in love with paint is through those shows, right? That's mm. what showed, I mean, I grew up in a body shop, wet sanding and sweeping dirty floors. It's, you know, that was my, you know, as you grew up in this dealership, I grew up in a body shop getting paint stripper in my eye because I didn't wear glasses and I never, I hated it. I hated it. But I, I was forced to do it, and all of a sudden I had this skill. So this this was a job. Uh, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to touch on how you got started in it. Is this yeah. a job that you just randomly fell upon, or was it like a family? Family. Uh, okay. Uh, so. Just in the automotive paint. Like my grandfather, who passed away in 2019, he was a jack-of-all-trades. I mean, this dude could paint your car, build your transmission, and then add an extra room on your house. <laughs> the baddest dude I've ever met, man. That's awesome. This and is your grandfather? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And so he taught my dad, who is not his son, uh, how to paint. And then my dad had opened a shop, he, and it's been his trade for his whole life. Um, and then when I was a kid, probably ninth grade, I went to live with him. My, my parents were divorced. I went to live with him, and that's whenever I got forced into the shop to go work, you know, free child labor, basically. <laughs> and uh, that was my summers. Uh, I did play sports. I played basketball. But, you know, it was increasingly getting harder and harder to focus on sports when – you know, A, I wasn't growing as tall as you did, and uh, and B, you know, I just, you know, the money, money started becoming a thing. I wanted, you know, growing up way too fast, basically, you yeah. know. So, yeah, I learned how to do, like, the basic stuff, and, and, and then I kind of, uh, I really wanted to be a mechanic more than I wanted to be a painter, just because I, I, I wanted out of that family lineage, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And did you, did you grow up in Texas, by the way? Yeah, Dallas, Texas. Okay. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, I live about 10, 15 miles from where I came out of my mom. It's weird. I wish <laughs> no, I'd. Nothing wrong with that, man. Um, wish I'd. You know, I travel a lot to make up for the fact that I would wish I would have moved and lived in different places growing up. Pain has always kind of gave me a chance to get in scenes, you know, because when I, when Fast and the Furious came out, the first movie, I was like, I was exposed to customizing because I grew up in a collision household or it was collision. There was nothing cool in there. It was like nice pewter blue or gray or whatever, you know. It was no no racing stripes, no flame jobs, no, you know, no funky colors like lime green and orange. There was nothing like that. So when that movie came out, it exposed me to something that I had no in interest in. And I'm like, oh, shit. I know how to do that stuff because of that. I could probably just apply what I know how to do in custom. Yep. And then... Lo and behold, there was a guy in Dallas, uh, Other Side Customs, who was looking for a wet sander. And I was like, I'm, why not a wet sander? And it's motorcycles. I didn't give a shit about motorcycles, right? I was an import car guy, you know, Fast and Furious. Uh, um, basically, what Sons of Anarchy has done to Dinas, Fast and Furious did to me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Getting tickets, street racing, cars that barely went any any fast at all, but just, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I took this job, you know, wet sanding because I needed money. And I was trying to be a mechanic so bad. I worked at Walmart changing oil and tires 
just because I want to work Good on shit. You, man. Yeah, hustling. You know, That's just awesome. being close to the actual thing. I, I wasn't trying to go work in an office when I really wanted to work with my hands. Yeah. And, uh, you. you know, I, I took that job painting, and I, I'm a visual learner, so I was able to wet sand and watch that guy airbrush over there and watch him lay out flames and watch them do this shit. And so I just, I would like, I, I will admit to this, I would like take a roll of tape and go home. And on my, my refrigerator or my table, I would start laying out graphics on the table because the tape would stick to it. <laughs> yeah. And I just fell in love with that. I fell in love with the, I was like, oh, and, and it's like anything, anything you try to do when you try it for the first time and you feel like, oh, shit, I can do this. I think I can do this. It's like this serotonin rush of just like <laughs> all you want to do is like dig deeper and deeper into it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I did it. And then me and, me and that shop, I worked with him off and on, but. Uh, that was 2004, and then in 2000, January of 2007, uh, was at three years. So three years span, I was the bottom of the top totem pole, wet sanding, taking out trash, washing my boss's bikes and cars. To I'm the head guy in the shop. I do all the custom paint, pinstriping, airbrushing, um, graphics. He actually, the owner, actually did all the painting. And next thing you know, you know, and in this time, sorry, I'm skipping around. That's that's rad though. By the way, three years and you go yeah. from the the wet center guy. To well, he told me something. Graphics. That's he awesome. told me something. I was very impressionable on this man, and he told me something. He goes, "The first job I ever had in this in this industry." He goes, "I walked in and I asked who made the most money," and the guy goes, "That painter over there makes the most money in this shop," and he said, "I took that dude's job in two months. Didn't know how to do it, just grinding." And I was like, "Okay, well, you know, this is pre YouTube, pre self." you know, motivation, Tony Robbins, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so that was impressionable to me. And I, and through his hard work and I saw him, mean, he had, a, he had a prowler. He was an easy rider magazine. He had a bag, he had a Hayabusa that was sick as hell. This dude was a God to me, man. He's everything I wanted to be growing up. He had all the coolest shit. Yeah. And you know, so anything that came out of his mouth was very impressionable on me. And, and I, I'm thankful for it because it definitely, a lot of those things sit with me today. You know what I mean? and that's cool man yeah it's you know two days or two weeks after i started working for the guy in 2004 biker builds off's in there filming you know a show with rick fairless and matt hotch you know wow. and wow. i'm just like so to add to the coolness like this dude's on tv when yeah. t when it meant something to be on tv yeah not nowadays when we're all on youtube and shit like that right, you know right yeah <laughs> so. well that's awesome so um i mean i know you do a lot of uh, airbrush work right mm -hmm. so I'm just not an artist at all. Yeah. And so when I see, uh, you know, beautiful work like what you do, um, you know, I think there's like a Pulp Fiction themed yeah, helmet yeah. or something like that's that mine, that you yeah. did. Uh, that's your helmet that you yeah. wear right now. Um, I'm just like, how the heck did they do that? Like, how is, is it just like trial and error, like practice? Yeah, yeah. Like, Well, there, there's, I think there's a little bit of backstory to that because in the tattoo culture around the mid 2000s, after all the TV shows came out, that culture itself went through a huge resurgence of quality within the tattoos. Like art, art, artists came to play. Like before, tattooers were more fringe, more you know, flash, and there was badass people in it. I'm not taking away that, but after like this boom of the Cat Von D's and the Miami Inks, real people that studied art started coming into the tattoo world, and they blew up and created this whole wild like thing that we know today of, of just beautiful artwork and tattoos mm. well some of the same processes to do say a tattoo like a realism face on a tattoo you can apply that to do an airbrush it's kind of a paint by, by numbers things with with shadows and gradients right and 
in those 2000s, whenever I was airbrushed, especially in 2007 when I actually started, man, it was the era where everything was affliction. So every paint job on a bike was skulls, roses, crosses, yeah. uh, you know, the Florida lease. I, I think that's how you say it. It was yep, just yep. that, right? Yep. Maybe a dragon, maybe some naked girls. I mean, it was like, it was just that. I'm know? very familiar with the era, yeah. Yeah. You describe and, it well, by the way. And then you kind of go into the 2010s and things become a little bit more, like especially out here in California around 2010, the panel stuff started really coming oh, back. Yeah. Heavy. Oh, yeah. And then the big wool bagger thing happened. And that was the, you know, I, I was heavy in that industry because that's where the money was to paint, you know? Yep. And that kind of had a style and a wave. And then when the, the, when the panel thing was here to stay, you know, of course it's old school. It's been around forever, but when it kind of resurfaced and it was here to stay, I finally, after five years of fighting it, decided I'm going to do a panel paint job. Yeah. And I did my first one in 2016 and it was easy as hell because, I mean, tep- typically the panel paint job is the easiest paint job to do. It's There's mm-hmm. not, you know, you can make it a very hard paint job, which is what I tried to do. But your basic thing, you have a shape and you outline the shape and then you put a piece of tape in between. You get, Now you outline another shape. Then maybe you just do a little line in it and then you just get some lace, which people think is the most hardest thing to do. And you just lay it over and spray it through and it's done. <laughs> yeah. And then people like I'll literally mural out a tank and have all a hundred hours in it and they'll see the lace and they'll go, Oh my God, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember those lace paint jobs on like the Dyna bros bikes and yeah. like the, the lace panels and then like the honeycomb panel. Yeah, yeah. Like I was, I, I've always done the honeycomb pretty heavily. I did it back in the big wool bagger days. And uh, I'm not going to say I invented that at all. I'm just going to say that, as someone that knows how to create vinyl graphics and stuff, because I do on the computer create like all my, a lot of things to not the graphics I lay out, but the honeycomb and those, those geometric shades that a lot of people would use. Yeah. I would draw those on the computer and plot it out. And mm-hmm. I remember drawing the honeycomb and then send it out to a lot of painters back in the day to be able to cut it for themselves. So, okay. you know, there's some out there that's probably using my original file that I had sent to them, but, uh, you know, I just take, take my own little victory lap for that one. But, yeah. um, you know, when I finally decided to do the the panel paint job, it was actually one of my buddies, one of my close friends. We rode the country. We used to ride big wheels together across the country. I got pictures of me and his bikes that we built in our in my first shop uh, as Fast Life. We would ride these baggers across country, and uh, we enjoyed it, man. We had a lot of fun. And some of my, still this day, great memories, you know, just traveling across country on big wheel baggers, which now, I, you know, I don't want to do it now. But, dude, I f- digged it back then. You know, it was fun. And it was fun with him. He was he was someone that I really enjoyed traveling with. But he was really interested, really interested in, like, the unknown guys yep. and Simpson helmets and flake jobs. And he'd always be like, dude, you should do one. You should get a helmet. I, I mean, I had a helmet for when we went through helmet states. So I wasn't ripping and running, you know, trying to wear helmets. I was trying to right. let this bald head get sunburned. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's like, man, you should do a Simpson helmet, man. And he's always tell, showing me Taylor Schultz and – and all these guys, and, you know, like, I finally, I got an opportunity to start flying to Northern California to paint bikes, and it was big wheel bikes, I wasn't painting Dynas or FXRs, and it was big wheels, but everybody that would bring their big wheel while we were painting them, they'd ride their Dyna up there to come check out on the progress, and so I finally rode my first Dyna up in NorCal, it was a 124, like, small frame Dyna, so like the 0405, you know, 0302, something like that, and I was like, whoa, this is 
fun. This is like my sport because I, I did a lot of sport bikes back in the 2000s. That was my jam. I couldn't afford Harleys, mm-hmm. right? I was like, this is fun. So I went home. I bought my first Dyna. It was a 07 uh, Dyna. And then uh, I went back to California, painted a lot of shit. And while I was up there, I, my friend was introducing me all these people that made parts for the Dynas, you know. So I'm getting risers and bars. I'm ordering a Conley's fairing. Remember those guys? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, getting, you know, talk. The first time I messaged Thrashing, I'm like, hey, man, I, I want to run your pipe on, on my bike. And he's like, cool, man, I'll give you a discount. I'm like, for real? <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. And so yeah. I, I ran a Thrashing pipe. I ran some Speed Merchant stuff. I was just like, so stoked about this bike, right? Birth of a Diner Bro. Birth of a Diner Bro. <laughs> I bought my, I was already wearing Dixons back in the day. I met, I started buying those way back in the day before a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, not before, but just, just, I'm not a, I'm not a late bloomer with that. I remember right. when he was still working at Chandler Harley and all that kind of mess and stuff, but now he's like I got the Yago Millionaire, yeah, NASCAR team provider or whatever. Okay. That's um, cool. But yeah, I did, I just did that, man. It was fun. And, um, but ultimately, the Big Wheel Bagger community was was really, it wasn't quite the community that I fit in. You know what I mean? And what I wanted out of motorcycling, what I wanted out of custom motorcycling. And more and more, I felt like an outcast of it. You know, I felt like, you know, it, it was more of a a show off of your money, show off of this. And it was it became less and less about the quality of building and unique individuality and more of like the wow factor oh now we're doing 32 inch wheels now there's a 34 this dude's got a you know he's got enough speakers on it to blow up something you know what i mean totally and it just kind of who can throw the most money at their bagger who can have the biggest wheel who can have the loudest stereo and and the thing that's unfortunate about it is there was some amazing builds through that era but they're overshadowed by all that clown shit yep right and it sucks because like i said i rode them I rode them just like people ride bikes now across country. And so I don't want to take that away from anybody that like rides those or has rode them. It's not like this, like a, like red, you know, red in your ledger or some shit like that. You know, that was the trend at the time. And it it spoke, that style spoke to a lot of people and now it's definitely phasing out. And now we're onto performance baggers. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, so as a guy that had baggers, you know, in that, and then I do the Dyna thing, then I do the FXR thing, which was, 100% 100% a life-changing bike and an experience with the community of the the FXR community across America. Um, this is 2016, 2017, right when the performance bagger was making its wave across the country as far as, like, visually. There had been a bunch of people putting T-bars on their baggers out here in California. There, you know, San Diego Customs had built a really badass bike for uh, Danny G. And, you know, there was people starting to happen. And I just kind of – perfect time, my age – the people in it, like it was, it's, it's the bike that is my generation, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I, I fell into it. I had already been familiar with baggers. This was an easy switch. It's like the Dyna and the FXR, but it's on a bagger and it was like, hell yeah, let's roll with it. Yeah. So, one of my favorite quotes, man, uh, success comes to people that are prepared. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you were prepared, you had the skills, you're like you said, like the right right age and everything, yeah. so the right place at the right time. Yeah. And so when the big or when the uh, the performance bagger movement started coming, uh, I bought my first one in November, and then we started this podcast in January, and a lot of the content in that podcast was talking about man, you see these new things, this performance bagger coming out, it's gonna be rad. I'm I'm building one now, doing this, blah blah blah, and I started making friendships with all these guys across country that were into that, you know. 
um, Mod Glide in North, Northern California, Steve Chamberlain out there in Michigan, um, Forever Rad, uh, Spatafor Choppers. Like there was a lot of people across the country that were leaning into this thing, this thing. It was, it was birthed in California, but there was, it was a nationwide event that was kind of happening. There was yep. a lot of major players coming up. Yep. And through our podcast, we started connecting with people. We started our camp out, um, you know, and then that became a almost like a performance bagger must for people. <laughs> and it's just kind of grown from that. And uh, Yeah, but, talk, talk about that for a second. Um, you know, we only have about 20 minutes left, and there's still a lot that I wanted to cover. <laughs> um, but, yeah, talk. so you have your uh, – at the K River, right? Yeah, Adam Sandoval's yeah. campground. Sandoval's yeah, campground. So talk a little bit about that camp and how long it's been going for. What, like four or five years now? Or this is the sixth year we've done it. Nice. Uh, or sixth annual. I don't. It doesn't feel like the sixth year, but somehow it lines up with six, right? Okay. Um, but it is the the sixth year we've done it. What happened is, uh, you know, campouts have always been a part of the motorcycle culture, right? It's since the beginning of time. What was happening, I think, at the time was I fell in love with a, a place called uh, an event called Gidea, which was in the New Braunfels area of Texas, like just north of San Antonio. And this thing was like one of the first events outside of the big wool bagger world that I went to. And it had like this camping vibe to it. And it's all the vintage chopper people that did it. Right. So you're born free type. Bitwell type. Yeah. Bitwell, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I went to it and then we camped cause I was just, you know, I was kind of getting it. So I just want to go camping and do this stuff. 21 days around the sky was another influential yeah. uh, documentary. Made me want to start camping and riding. Yeah. And, um, I had so much fun and it opened up my eyes so much to other areas of the motorcycle culture that I was kind of blown, blown away is the, is the only way I could put it. I was like, wow, I'm, I've been doing that shit over there for so long and this has been existing and this is so much fun and, and, and like not about my bike. It's about the people and, and sharing camaraderie and drinking beers and, you know, all that kind of shit. It was just like, this is me and this is exactly who I want to do, what I want to do now. Yeah. And um, that went away. Or actually, to be, to be more honest with you, that was dope, but it didn't really cater to uh, the people that had, you know, Dinas, FXRs, Sporties, and emerging performance baggers and if things like that. If you didn't like roll that. up on like a panhead, then yeah, you were kind of yeah. like, who cares about you? Kind of. I mean, you still felt welcome there, but yeah. you didn't feel like it was yours. You felt like you were at somebody else's party. Right. At somebody else's house. I understand, yeah. And so uh, my friend John Jessup in NorCal heard us talking about how cool this was on our podcast. So he attempted to put something together in NorCal that was a camp thing. And it kind of, uh, from what he had told me, it kind of didn't work out that well. Um, he had people, but it just didn't have the, the buzz that he wanted, so he kind of let it go. And so I had made a lot of really close friends that I travel with today in that same time because we had started a bike night in Dallas. And through the podcast, then having the bike night, a lot of people would hear us on the podcast and come to the bike night. And then over a repetition of just coming every week, you know, we start to become friends. And we're like, hey, man, let's go to this Adam Sandoval's place and uh, check it out. I got to do a podcast where we can just camp there and hang out. We go, have a blast. And I'm like, man, let's just do it. Let's just do a camp out. First camp out was in September of 2018. We had about 40 people show up, and about 25 of those people were me and my friends <laughs> from Dallas. Yeah. And we just had fun, and then we talked about it on the podcast. And then next year, um, you know, it was about 70 people in, nice. in 2019. And then in 2020, we were like, because it's at the end of April and the world shut down, right? Yeah. Yep. So we were like, do we market it still? Because we're still going. 
you know, us boys in Texas ain't f-ing around. We're, we're well, there's there's not a whole lot of rules at, yeah, yeah, at, yeah. at uh, K K River Campground yeah, either, yeah. right? <laughs> From what I understand, man, we had like a uh, almost 200 people show up. Dang, nice, and people loved it. And it's what would happen is we tried to explain to people this is like, look, the camp out is about riding across country from wherever you're from and meeting up with people on the ride and creating a relationship while you go get there. You know what I mean? Cause when you travel on a bike, especially if you're from a part of the country where you may, may not have this like big group of friends that's into what you're into. It doesn't mean that there's not a guy a couple towns over or a state over that you can link up with and have that kind of friendship and relationship with. And what we've seen happen, and we didn't plan this. This is out of happenstance, if you will. We've seen that happen when people start putting up, hey, leaving Long Island, New York, uh, this is my route. Anybody want to join or is anybody already got a ride going on that I can join? And then just through stories on Instagram, people start connecting. That's and right. then you got like a group of 40 dudes coming in and a group of 10 dudes. And then they become friends for life because of all the stories that they create on the road traveling together. Yeah, that's and, so cool. You know, and then next thing you know, like, you know, it just gets bigger and bigger. And, you know, we last year we had over a 1,000 people show up to the campground. And, um, you know, we don't do vendors. No vendors. What What's the capacity there? Like, I mean. Um, Adam's got acres for days. Oh, really? There's people that come there. We never even see them. They're so far off in the cut somewhere, like probably starting a little homestead or some shit out there. <laughs> we don't even know what's going on. You know? So it's kind of like a free-for-all almost. It is. But there's really good riding out there in the middle of uh, southeastern Oklahoma. It, and there's not a lot of people, not a lot of cops. Yeah. Um, you kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an experience and it's, it's a season opener for people in the Northeast and the Northwest to ride somewhere. You know, yeah. Daytona is like the season opener, but most people are traveling in, in, uh, with trailers and things like that or, or, or uh, flying in and renting bikes. Right. This is like one of the first events that, and the reason we put it there is because if you go another month later, then you're in, you're in the really bad time of year to try to camp it's it's muggy it's hot it's not the it's not ideal Mm. this time it's green you're you know you're gonna get rained on no matter where you're coming from and that's part of it because people need to we feel like people need to if they really want to understand riding they need to understand the hardships of riding because those hardships make you appreciate all the you know the other shit right yeah Yeah, so we try to tell people you know if you see rain on the ground or just plan for it you know you i'm not saying you have to ride through it i mean if you can take the time they take an extra day, cool. But if it's pouring rain all weekend, we're still there. Yeah. And we were there one year. It did do that. Mm. And it was wild. It was some freaking Woodstock type shit going on. <laughs> but the good thing is, like, it's it's younger people. It's not a whole bunch of 50, 70, 60-year-old people that are out there flopping titties around and stuff like that. It's, <laughs> right. it's young people between, like, the ages of 18 and, and, you know, 60. Still, there's older guys out there, too. Um, but everybody's on the same level, the same vibe. Yeah. Haven't had any fights yet. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't had any drama. And we've every year we've tried to implement something new that brings people back to the middle to meet each other. And so it's really just a community building thing where we try to give people the 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 ability to meet other people to, to start wanting to travel and, and ride miles and stuff. And that's something that really changed my life whenever I started doing that. So Yeah. You know, no, that's that's very cool. I mean it's it's amazing to someone like yourself create this event from forty people and, and build it up to a thousand people. I mean that's it's that's, a, that's awesome, man. It's a concept of consistency, right? If you're yeah. building up a YouTube or anything like that, it, you're, you know, you're always going to look at the numbers and be like, well, and one thing we've always said is like, it's not about how many people show up. Just like our bike nights that we host every week. It's like, there's times it's three of us there, mm. but it's every week. And if you need it, we're here for you. If you don't need it, you know, it, you don't have to come, but we're still there. 
And next thing you know, one bike night, 70 people. And we're raging till 2 in the morning. And then one bike night, it's snowing, and we all drive in, and we do a little gift exchange for Christmas. It's, it's, it's always been, to me, it's about community and building stuff for people can. And then a lot of people have taken these ideas that we've kind of shown them and taken it to other parts of the country, and we've seen scenes start to be uh, formed, you know. Yeah. Arkansas was, a, was one of those. They just they had a lot of cool dudes, but they just didn't know how to get together. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it sounds like you do so much stuff, like, in the community of motorcycling. That's something that I wish I could do more of. You know, a lot yeah. of times people say, hey, hey, you know, Matt, when are we going to have, like, a, an open ride, you know, where people can just join up and go on a ride somewhere with you? And, um, and you know, what, what events are you going to be at this year? And I feel like, you know, my, my core job here at the dealership takes up so much of my time yeah. and dictates so many places where I can be. How do you balance between, you know, trying to trying to make a buck, you know, for a living yeah. and then doing these bike nights, doing these podcasts, doing these camp outs. Like uh, it's, it's a hard, I would imagine you and your, you have, you know, kids too. Like yeah. how do you balance all that? Selfishness. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, I'm fortunate because my daughter is 21. She's out of the house. Uh, my son's 11 and he doesn't live with me. So I only, you know, I make time for him on the weekends and times that we do things together. My wife's very supportive of me and I owe a lot of my, ability to hyper focus on these parts of my life because I've, I've got a good foundation at home. I, me and my wife have a great trust for each other. So I'm out on the road for two weeks doing this stuff and you know, everything's good. I don't, you know, we don't have insecurities like that and stuff that we deal with. So, um, as far as, you know, it's still, that doesn't really answer the question. Honestly, it, it really, the thing is, is, um, I don't really understand why I, I take on all these like roles and challenges. I, I think of it more. One of my friends in the early podcast um, told me is like episode number two or three on my, on my fast life podcast. He was a, he was in a club and a club, very old club that's been around for years and years, one of the oldest. And he said, um, I don't want this to die on my top turf or on my yeah. Like when I'm in charge, when I'm yeah. in charge, I don't want this all to fall his, apart. His and stewardship. Or, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that subconsciously is like stuck in me very hard where I feel like, you know, having, having some followers on Instagram means nothing if you can't turn that into something. Right. Like I, I don't really, I don't sell parts. I don't sell things. I just, I, I provide things for, for the community, you know, whether it is a paint job or it is an event or it is a podcast or something like that. So for me, I look at it more so as how, how can I word this? Um, if I could take these followers and get them to come to this camp out, then people can benefit from that and walk away with something that they got from whatever this fast life garage thing is. Right. Mm -hmm. If I can do these podcasts and have guys like on, like you on, that can put perspective in people's ears so that they can, you know, get through maybe these hiccups in life where they want to find and, and, and become a content creator or a painter or start riding across the country. I mean, a lot of it is, yes, I set my life up to be able to do these things as opposed to, you know, instead of doing 50 bikes a year, I paint nine bikes a year only between October and April so that I can do all the events and not, you know, feel like I'm holding your bike hostage in the shop yeah. while I'm on the road. Helmets are a great thing because the way that the hoops that I, I, I ask my customers to jump through for me to do them allows me to not be, you know, there, there could be – it's not unheard of for, to, to be over a year to get a helmet from me, you know, and I'm not saying that's, like, to be, like, that's how busy I am. I'm just saying that, like, I do have a lot on my plate, and I do put 100% effort into everything I do. And with that being said, it's 
it sometimes it has to be on my terms when things gets gets done. Yeah, like yeah. that. And um, well, you, you, I mean, you've been grinding the last what week and a half already. How many how yeah. many podcasts have you done in the last week and a half? With you today, it'll be eleven, and I've been in the car for sixty three hours, and I've done. Three thirty three hundred miles so far thirty four hundred miles. Yeah, I mean that's that's a labor of love right there, man. Yeah. I mean that's you don't just do that because you know it's it's paying you millions of dollars. You do it because and I know it's not, but it's <laughs> it's because you know you love it. You love yeah, the community. I mean, you love the motorcycle you know world. And you're passionate about what you do, and um, I'm 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 jealous of your network too. I mean, I see some of these guys you have on your your podcast yeah, and stuff, yeah. and I mean. Um, your, your your networking. I mean, talk about first just a second about your networking. I mean, how 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 much has that benefited you, just in your uh, your life in motorcycles? I in think general? that my friends group has benefited my podcast and my my overall way of life because I think people see genuine friendships through our podcast when they watch our lives and we're getting super hammered on there and whatnot, or they see us tra- traveling the country together. Um, that's definitely been something that's helped our podcast become something that people enjoy because they all, you know, I don't think that, I don't think it's people and uh, we talk about being a good friend enough, right? We always think about how can we better be a better dad, a husband, you know, how can we t- take care of our family? But the friendship thing always gets put to the wayside. It's supposed to be like, oh man, I'll see you when I see you and we're going to pick up where we left off. But man, that's not really how friendships always work. You know, friendships take time, they take energy and you got to think of it more like, in my opinion, it's not always about what it's what it can do for you, but what can you do for it as a whole, you know? Not being friends out of convenience, even though convenience brings us a lot a lot of us together, to make sure that like if you live next door to a guy and y'all become best friends, but then he moves on the other side of the highway and you don't see him anymore, that's a that's a convenient friend that you have now let go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, the bike night every week, that's so that we stay connected to what we are about because I might be going through some shit that week and I need that bike night to go have a couple Guinnesses and say some shit that I might not mean, but I need to say it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And vice versa. Somebody might be going through some stuff with their old lady and bike night becomes, you know, biker therapy sometimes. Yeah. It's your venting session. It's your, it's your yeah. escape from the daily grind. And Absolutely. you know, like that's what it's for. And so like, you know, when you have these people and then you get closer and then you start traveling together and you have all these stories and you put them on a podcast and people hear their stories they kind of people want that. I mean, everybody wants friends. Like the guy that doesn't want friends is the guy that, you know, has had nothing but bad friends his whole life. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But then that might be because he's not a good friend. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like uh, I pride myself on trying to be somebody that that um is inclusive or yeah inclusive and brings people around and shows them things and and also I'm very observant so that when I'm when I'm around people that. That, you know, I, a lot of my friends and customers, I, I look at them as mentors and friends. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I like the saying that, you know, you're you're the average of your five closest friends, yeah. right? So whoever you surround yourself with, you know, that's who you're going to become. And, um, you know, surrounding yourself with people that are better than you or, or people that can mentor you yeah. or, or people that have accomplished what you want to accomplish, I feel like that's the way to then you know yeah meet your goals and so so the hardest part about that is then you also got to think about who are you for the people you know are you you know because if if you're only thinking about who they are for you then you're not you're not being genuine in your friendships you're being one-sided so it's like i got to think okay yes i do want to be around more photographers and people that i can kind of vibe with on these things i'm interested in but 
what am I to my friends? And I, how can I be better of that for them? And, Absolutely. you know, it's just like it's those kind of concepts that, you know, you have a bunch of drinks and beers around a campfire in the middle of nowhere, and you're going to get to know each other deeper than they probably, their old ladies probably know, you know, not, we're not yeah. touching each other or anything yeah. like that, but you yeah, know, this, this is one time it was, it was an accident. So. <laughs> it happens, right? Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but I still wanted to touch a, a little bit more on, um, uh, your painting and, and I hear uh, Indian motorcycles are your favorite bikes to paint. Is that no, true? No. <laughs> well, it's funny because when they dropped the Indian, um, through the podcast, you know, y- anytime you have your opinions, uh, or whatever recorded for people to play over and over again, you know, you're going to find people that want to poke the bear or they want to, you know, create some hype and drama and polarization, if you will. And, um, when it came out, I, I was just not a fan of it. I thought it was goofy. You're talking about the challenger? The challenger. Yeah. Okay. I never really paid paid attention to the other bikes because I I didn't feel like they really, they, they didn't really come into our scene the same way. I, I know that, the, the the chieftain had a had a street glide vibe, but you know in the performance bagger thing the street glides were kind of like the the redhead stepchild right. anyway you yeah. know yeah um, but the road glide when the challenger came out it was like it was like all the memes where it was like hey here's my homework but you know change a few things so they don't know you copied me <laughs> and shit like <laughs> right. there was a lot of good memes about it but yeah um and I wasn't a big fan I'm still not necessarily a huge fan I. I my hatred isn't really towards Indian. It's just towards the, you know, when I try to tell people why I'm in love with Harleys, it's because of the feel. The, it doesn't feel as plasticky. It, um, even though there's a lot of plastic on a Harley, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of plastic in the fairings bags. It's yep. the, the hand controls, like the hand controls are a thing. The, uh, the ergonomics, like the thing that you're actually seeing the most when you ride the bike feels cheap. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. And for me that, as someone that spends a lot of time on a saddle, like I want to feel like I have something cool and, you know, just, I don't know. I mean, I have ridden one before. Um, I have a really, really close friend that, that builds some of the best, best challengers in the, out there. I still don't like them. You talking about forever rad or forever rad. Yeah. yeah Kyle's he stopped dude. by here this last summer during born free. So yeah. I got to meet him and yeah, he's a cool guy. And, um, he rolled up on his, his Challenge. Indian challenger and of course, me being me, I got a poke, you know. And so, um, and the first thing he said to me was like, "You want a race?" I was like, "Okay, okay, well, see, easy, bro." Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just having fun here. Here's dude. the, like, here's the funny it. thing: we raced at our campout in 21, I believe. I think it was 21. We were racing. I was nervous because I got a 131. It's just crate, uh-huh. nothing else done to it. 131 crate, and he had his bike, and uh, and I got him. I beat him. Uh huh. Um, but then, you know, it was kind of like his motor with a cam mm-hmm. versus the 131. And his bike would definitely beat mine now because he's had a, a lot of things done to it as far as, like, getting it more dialed in and whatnot. But I I still hold the win. So <laughs> yeah. even though I'm not racing him anymore right now, you know, but at the same time, I feel like the, you know, when the Harley – has been something for me that is it's like uh it's it's just deeper than just a uh the machine it's like it's the it's the friends that i've made because of it it's the uh it's the life i've lived over the last 20 years because of it totally. and you know with it with that being said it's it's like it's hard not to be loyal to something that's given me so much good in my life like instagram has given me a lot of good but it's also given me a lot of like hardships so i don't love it the same way even though it's provided me with a lot of opportunity in life Mm-hmm. That bike has just been nothing but opportunity and fun and 
it's been a lifeline, you know, making money to provide for my kids, you know, all that shit over the years, um, without the custom motorcycle industry that's connected to Harley Davidson, I wouldn't have, I I wouldn't do this for nothing that I do would happen. So, um, well, I I can say the same thing, by the way. Yeah. I think even in a more obvious aspect, you know, Harley Davidson has been my family's livelihood for 65 years. Yeah. So, um, and it's great too, that I just so happen to love Harley Davidson's as well, well the recreation yeah. of it. And just, I mean, I love touring around the country on, on bikes. You know, I yeah. wish I could do it more. Um, I, I feel like you do it way more than I do. Um, but it, it's just awesome being able to experience some of these, especially the Western United States. I yeah. mean, we live in such an awesome place with these big, nice open roads with all these beautiful national parks and yeah. some of these roads that go through the mountains are just like, oh my gosh. And to experience it on the back of a motorcycle with an engine between your legs, it's just like, oh my gosh, like this is the best. And like living out of your saddlebags and things like yeah. that. Did, so, I mean, it doesn't really get any better than this. Yeah. You know, one thing I always tell people about like traveling in the, uh, the flyover states, if you will, um, you got to find you got to find these things about these other areas of the country that interest you, you know, like for me, I found an interest in the Plains Indians and the whole culture behind or not culture, but the whole history behind that. And it made these long flat plains, you know, rides like interesting. Cause you see these towns and you start, I read a book or an audio book. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, you just start putting yourself in this place and you think, Oh man, you know, 150 years ago people were riding horses and carriages across this stuff trying to create this this world on the other side of those mountains and it's like you know for me it's like it's all perspective thing it's like even riding you know new york and the and the east coast and just things are older and there's history and it's like i don't know man i i think this country has every type of riding you could ever want it has the historical stuff it has the the coastal lines the 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 jungle like vibes i was gonna say jungle fever um <laughs> it has like a you know the the real blue collar midwest you know running around the great lakes areas and all those um those those towns it has yep. this you know california vibes pch um yep. you know that it you can literally just spend your whole life riding america and 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 be content yeah you know so Jace, we're pretty much out of time, but I, I, I want to start asking all my guests their top three rides, especially someone like you that rides quite a bit and prides mm-hmm. himself on long distance riding. If you could only pick three places in the United States to to ride um, every every year, what would it be? Every year, top three places rides. Yeah. Okay, for sure, people in my pod, they listen to my podcast know the number one is always going to be Monument Valley. That place is some kind of. Uh, woo-woo stuff going on when I'm riding a bike through there. Maybe it's just Forrest Gump. I don't know what it is, but I just feel so, like, I don't know. It's some weird feeling, you know what I mean? And it's not sexual. It's just like, <laughs> it's just an amazing Spiritual. place. Um, spiritually, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I would say that the second one that I've probably, I don't know if it's rides, I would say. I could say places. Yeah, let's say places. Um there's something about the the California coastline, and I don't even know if it's PCH, the most popular part that everybody rides. I've always liked this one ride from basically Bodega Bay back into the Bay Area, mm. and it takes you kind of through a couple little beach town, coastal towns that I just I, I fall in love with it. I love the coastline. I, I, there's something about that, and, and it's just this one stretch that I've ridden a handful of times with a couple of close friends. And I've always, like, ended it by going up to the Battery Spencer part of San Francisco to get the view of the whole Bay Area and the bridge. Your, and, yeah, your photos with yeah, the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, I take pictures every time I go amazing. there. Yeah. So 
that ride has always been kind of special to me, and I could do it every year for the rest of my life without any question. Um, hell, third one's going to have to be. So the third one, I'm going to have to split it into two. Okay. I just have to, just to be fair. There's no rules here. Go ahead. All right. I love how it feels to ride in New York. And it's not, it's nothing that, sh- it doesn't make any sense. But I love the energy of that town and, and riding in Brooklyn and Queens and just looking over the the river. I forget which river it is there. And just seeing that skyline, it it just reminds me of a mountain range, but digital. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's a, I've never been to New York, man. It's a beautiful experience. And then when you're in New York, when you're riding it, cause I got to ride uh, Manhattan during the, the uh, pandemic in 2020. Okay. And I mean, there's people on the streets, but man, we were ripping through there on baggers. Cause there's the traffic was no non-existent. Everything was kind of closed down. So that's cool. that was an amazing experience. And I don't think I'll ever get to experience it that way again, but that place has something magical to it that I, that I really appreciate. Mm. And but it's a toss-up split between Sturgis because Sturgis yeah. is something that um, for the rest of my life, if I can, I'm going to be there in some form or fashion. And that place is uh, that place is just like the history of motorcycling. Like you tap into that culture. You tap into that feeling. You see everybody there, every different type of walk of life, and, and, and they're there to enjoy the same thing, the, those amazing roads, the history of, of the Black Hills, um, the history of Sturgis itself. I mean, there's just so much to consume out there that it's like I, I, I do the same thing every time I go there. And it's like it's new again. It's like I, it's like this doesn't make any sense. But are you, are you going this year? Every year. Every year. All I've right. only since 2014, I messed up and didn't go in 18. And I kicked myself in the ass because this would be going on my ninth year in a row, I think. Wow. Good for and you. Um, I'm, I'm going this year. So I'll, I'll see you out there. Yeah, for we'll, sure. We'll have, to, we'll have to do a ride or something. Yeah, that's it, man. I think there's there's a million other great places to ride, but. You know, I think those are kind of my top ones. That if I could do those each once a year, every year for the rest of my life, I'd, I'd be pretty content with my. And they're all they're everywhere. Yeah, you know. Yeah, coast coast, kind of middle middle. Yeah, all so, sides of the the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the New York one was kind of unexpected, but that's. I mean, that sounds amazing. I've never ridden in, yeah. in New York. I've never been to New York City, so uh, I got to make it out there. It's intense. It's, I bet. Indian Larry Block Party. I went to that. It was it was amazing. It was okay. a great time. So yeah, rad. Well, cool. Well, thanks, Jace. I appreciate you coming all the way out here and, and sitting down in this podcast with me. Tell everybody where they can find you like on social media and yeah, stuff. Yeah, uh, the Fast Life Garage on Instagram, the Fast Life Garage on YouTube. We do plan on starting to do some kind of vlogish type thing. Uh, I got some plans. Um, I don't know if it'll be good for a while. So you might want to just skip it for another year and then pick up when it's actually polished a little it'll, bit. It'll be good, guys. Just follow <laughs> it. And uh, yeah, the Fast, Life, uh, the Fast Life podcast is on all um podcast platforms under that name it's also every one of our episodes since day one is on our youtube channel for you can listen you can listen to the majority of them and you can watch a lot of them. we've been doing lives and and uploaded videos for like three years now i mean so, you, you got to have like hundreds of hours of content on there like uh, if not thousands yeah it's it's a lot it's thousands yeah sometimes i'm like holy shit like that's uh yeah because I, I i don't know when to stop sometimes <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah it's crazy well, hey, I appreciate it, though, man. Yeah. I really do. It's, yeah, it's been you. awesome. It's been my pleasure, man. Yeah. All right, take care.